Welcome to The Light Within, a podcast for anyone seeking to rewrite their life, live in their light, and align with their soul's highest purpose. I'm Leslie Draffin. I'm a certified microdosing practitioner, menstrual cycle coach, and feminine embodiment mentor. And I'm on a mission to break taboos around women's bodies, periods, and psychedelics. On this show, we're exploring all things spirituality, sexuality, mysticism, and empowerment. Come along as I interview other coaches, teachers, healers, and thought leaders about all the ways we can feel more tuned in, turned on, and lit up AF. If you're on a journey towards self-discovery, you've come to the right place. This is The Light Within. Hello, beautiful beings, and thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Light Within. Today, I am so honored to have with me on the show someone who has been my mentor for the last few months, someone I have learned so much from, and someone who I am just so privileged to be in their world and in their space. Her name is Michaela Delamico or Mama Delamico on social media. And tonight we are talking all about the shadow side of psychedelics, the abuses within the psychedelic community, including some things that happened to Michaela herself. We are talking about rematriating entheogens, how to honor the indigenous peoples and the indigenous mothers um, that this knowledge really originated with. And we're also talking about psychedelic motherhood. This is a super juicy conversation, and it's also one that I want to put a content warning on. We do talk a little bit about um, sexual assault. And so if you're someone who um, has experienced that in their life and you find that it's hard to listen to conversations about that, just know that you know this might not be the conversation for you. Or if you're feeling really ungrounded, maybe you want to come to this conversation later. There's no rush, absolutely no rush to listen to this. Um, Michaela is someone who has so much grace when she speaks about things that are really difficult. And so in the show notes, you're going to see a lot of links, links to the Tap Out Coalition, which you will le- learn more about here in a minute, links to Michaela's work. You'll also find some links to other podcasts she's been on because this woman is a wealth of knowledge and I did not have time to talk to her about all the things, but there are two amazing podcasts that I would point you to if you want to learn more from her. And I know that after you listen to this full conversation, you're just going to want to listen to everything she has to say because she's just so beautiful inside and out. In the conversation, we also talk about when I started working with Michaela, and that was because I was growing this group program that is now known as Mushwomb Alchemy. Mushwomb is a word Michaela really brought into the consciousness, um, and so I knew I wanted to go straight to the source to get some guidance um, and, yeah, get some permission to to use this word and in my work. And she was so gracious to work with me for several months to really co-create the framework that is Mushwomb Alchemy. I ran the first cohort this summer, and now this eight-week program is opening again. The first live calls happen the first week of October. And tonight, if you're hearing this on September 18th, I am having a free masterclass to talk more about how intentional microdosing can really help women and menstruators, and also to share more about this super juicy and intimate container that will be starting off in a couple of weeks. So if you're listening and you feel really drawn to this topic, um, that is really what Mushroom Alchemy is really about, and I would love to talk more with you about that. So you can either sign up for the free training if you see this on the 18th or book a free call with me. Again, the links are below. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Please help me welcome Michaela DeLamigo to the Light Within podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Leslie. It's really nice to be with you. I am so fucking excited for this conversation. Um, and to start, the question I ask everyone who comes on the show is, what ignites your light within? I, I'm really ignited. And I think what is also relevant to this conversation is I'm so ignited by community. Um, I'm so ignited by people showing up for each other, us going through hard things together, us going through triumphs together, us celebrating each other, crying together. I mean, it's something I never had. I grew up a loner. Um, I couldn't find my way with friends and feeling like I was part of something because I was in spaces that didn't really um, want to see me thrive. I grew up in like Christian, Baptist, Catholic school, like none of who I was trying to be was in line with what they were trying to have me be. So 
yeah, I spent most of my time alone. So it's really nice to be here now at 29, like in communities, supporting, being supported by, and um, letting the light of other people's light me up and then sharing what I have to give to make a, com a communal light a little bit brighter. So I'm definitely here for that um, these days. And it's so evident too. Um, and I always get so surprised when you tell me that you're 29, because seriously, you're like the most wise person. Um, and you guys are going to obviously hear that throughout this conversation. Um, and I already did a little bit of an intro, but why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about who you are, what it is that you've birthed into this world and what's coming up for you. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a mother. I am a community facilitator. I'm a mush womb educator. And I'm sure a lot of you know about mush womb from Leslie now. And um, I just love that it's kind of really expanded in the community as a terminology, um, a consciousness really that um, really rides and acknowledges and excavates the intersection of being a cyclical, a cyclical person being an entheogen explorer and entheogen matriarch um, and uplifts this this idea and that notion that healing could come from within the body um, through descension, you know, descension into the plant kingdom, the fungus kingdom, um, the earth itself. So I'm really happy to be an agent of change in that regard. And um, my thesis is really to rematriate entheogens. And I feel like that could do such an incredible, um, it can bring such an incredible shift to what we're seeing largely in the psychedelic movement. And so I really look forward to talking about how, you know, these missing components are leading to a lot of problems in our community and what potentially we can explore um, within, you know, traditional models, um, within models of you know, indigeneity that you hold yourself, Leslie, that I hold myself, that we really need to put eyes on again and to embody in our everyday. There's a lot of things that come from, you know, your ancestral traditions that were stripped from you, you know, um, and because they were stripped from you first, they could be stripped from me later. And so um, I'd love to, you know, indigenize um yeah, all the practices that we have. And I try to express that through my platform, Mama Della Mico, um, you know, just holding space at the intersection of medicine, woman, psychedelic mom, sacred hoe. And when I say sacred hoe, like the fully embodied se sexual and sensual being that we were born and destined to be. And I think you can be all those things. You can be an incredible mother and show up for your household um, and run an amazing space. Um, I really do feel like you can be a medicine woman and carry medicines in an integral way and in a way that honors them and ourselves and um, ethics. And I do believe that you can do so all while being embodied, fully capable, very much pleasured, well pleasured at that. And, um, and in a way that acknowledges that um, our pleasure is very sacred and our sexual energy is very powerful. So um, if any of that resonates with you, I encourage you to listen on because that's where I'm coming from when it comes to, yeah, how we need to navigate um, this psychedelic landscape. Mm. Well, today I was trying to think back, how the fuck did I even find you? And I think it was because of the fact that I live in Texas where female reproductive rights are totally obliterated. And you were sharing last year, you know, when we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Texas had already passed their back ass shit, but plant B, and you were talking about the, these aminagogues and someone, I was a cycle coach at that point, And I just found it so fascinating. So I know that's one of the first things that drew me in, you know, the work that you were doing about how nature can take care of our ability to direct our decisions around children. Um, and then, of course, the mushroom consciousness. And for folks who aren't familiar with this or don't even know the story, I actually reached out to Michaela earlier this year when I was putting together my group program because I knew that this word mushroom was something that she had really brought into the landscape and was talking about so much. And I wanted to make sure that it was 
you know, I that I had contact with her. And then it became like this beautiful mentorship. And I felt so supported throughout the summer as I really like navigated that group program and turned it into what it is now. And so I've had the chance to like sit with you and learn from you in a couple of different ways. And so when you were talking about the Ancestor Project, um, which we're going to dive into now, I remembered that I had taken your Wombs of the Empire course last year. And then to hear you talking about this, I was like, what the fuck? So let's just kind of bridge into like all of that to say when I entered into this space of, of beginning to train in the psychedelic, um, you know, coaching sphere or, or facilitating sphere, you know, I still have someone that I consider to be really green and I'm open about that fact. And I think that one thing that for me, that's always been worrisome is being in a space of altered consciousness with the right people who are going to take care of me and making sure that I take care of them too Mm -hmm. in my own way. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to just kind of start by explaining a little bit about maybe, you know, what a lot of this stuff has been going on with the Ancestor Project and the Tapped Out Coalition, um, I think that's an interesting place to start for us because it was one of my very first times I learned from you. I took the double blind course that you taught in as well, but the Ancestor Project Wounds of the Empire was one of the very first times that I was actually, you know, absorbing your teachings in a paid way. And now to find out that there was all this bullshit drama behind the scenes where people weren't getting paid to me just was like, wow. Mm. Thank you. Um, yeah. And thank you for acknowledging that you're green. I'm green. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I'm green. <laughs> and a lot of us are, and a lot of us are making the culture right now as we go. Um, what is acceptable within the culture, because even traditional frameworks are totally failing us. And so we're having to really think on our toes about how do we approach psychedelic business? How do we relate to each other? And so, you know, just I want to acknowledge you for when you were making your group container to even have like the wherewithal to even reach out because I've had to, you know, people in my community have scouted like, oh, people are using this word and like they're charging $5,000 for, you know, some experience in Lake Atitlan, for example, and, you know, are not, and and no one's indigenous and no one's black. And um, it's just, it's just important to just keep the integrity of this terminology and who it was meant to serve to begin with. And so getting into relationship with you, seeing who you are, learning a little bit about you and like what you're creating and how you're creating it and co-creating it with you just felt so equitable and so right. So I just want to acknowledge how you went through with that in such a good way. And I think cultural appropriation, cultural appreciation really comes up a lot within the early training within the psychedelic space, because there's a lot of things that early psychonauts learn that are adopted from indigenous teachings and aren't always told where they come from, how we got them and like how to acknowledge their origins. And so the practice of just acknowledging origin is how a lot of us have learned to navigate cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. So, you know, cultural appropriation, not just being like the use of a feather, but also the use of an idea and like making money off of it. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that, um, first of all. And, you know, I'm glad that you um, went through Wombs of the Empire. Wombs of the Empire, that course was like such a a love letter um, to this, like this mushroom consciousness. How, who are we? How did we get to this point of subjugation and how do we get free? And, you know, a lot of us that are experiencing harm um, are doing, are, are experiencing that because there are systemic issues here. And so this idea around this, like, hyper focus on the individual just it doesn't quite paint the full picture and so that's actually really what's been uh, unearthed with this tapped out coalition because when I got into relationship with the ancestor project which was a very thriving um, black-led psychedelic education org that was putting on tons of summits and courses and running ceremonies um You know, it was like one of the first that we ever saw like active boots on the ground, psychedelic education for BIPOC, like it, and that's black indigenous people of color. Like we never had anything like that. And so people were really drawn to, and obviously the graphics were super cool. And um, the woman who was the co-founder, Charlotte, 
Um, she just is so deep in integrity. So we all knew about it from her and we all trusted the organization because of her. And, um, she had a counterpart and it's that male counterpart, um, that has caused a lot of harm in our community. And I sat for, um, the largest dose of, um, mushroom medicine that I've ever experienced with them because I trusted them that much. So I flew to Baltimore, had my experience. And then as a gift to them, I gave them a 75 split for my wombs of the empire course, because I really appreciated what they'd done for me. And that's what community is about. And that was a gift. That ceremony was a gift to me. And wombs of the empire was also a, a gift to them as an organization. So thankfully in that regard, I was not um, I was not mistreated financially by them because they got the lion's share of it anyway. But what I didn't know was that Charlotte didn't see any of that money. I got my cut and she didn't even get hers. And she is was the the engine that ran that whole organization while the other person really greatly benefited from the reputation that she built. So thank you for considering like the ways that you exchange with that organization and like doing our, you know, due diligence to see if like the people in fact that are, you know, doing the labor of it are being compensated. There's a lot going on with like psychedelic retreat centers and people building organizations overseas. And these folks are not being paid, you know, handsomely or a living wage even sometimes because, they, the people that run the show don't feel like they have to. So it's really hard vetting organizations, not even just on the safety of yourself as an individual, but also in the, the ethics of the way that they're extracting labor from the people that work for them. So I, um, it was unfortunate after the Wombs of the Empire, that was a good experience with them. And I got into... I trusted to deepen my business relationship with the organization. And that's where I learned about the financial corruption and learned about the financial manipulation and what Charlotte had been going through the whole time we were all connected to the org for three years. So um, breaks my heart and doing our very best to try to balance the scales, if you will, with the tapped out coalition. So really happy to speak about what we've been doing to create change, because this is a systemic problem. And so hopefully, if we can create a bit of a blueprint here, other people can apply it in their own community so that we can see some radical change on a systemic level. Absolutely. So the tapped out coalition, as I understand it, really started because of these financial issues. Um, people, specifically BIPOC women, were not being paid for the services that they had already rendered and were contractually obligated to be paid for mm -hmm. um, by the Ancestor Project. Mm -hmm. And I know there was like a separation between the people who were the founders, um, Charlotte, who you mentioned, and then um, Andrea Wright, who is, I think, the person, the male side of this that you spoke about before. Um, and so I think from my, like, that was how it started. And I remember watching with bated breath, like your July, I believe it was in July, like the unveiling of what was going on on the Instagram and then to see it turn to things that weren't just related to money. That was the unfortunate Pandora's box that we opened when we first came forward and ripped the bandaid off and realized like the wound had been festering. Um, because yeah, there was enough of us. There was six people originally in the coalition that had kind of come together we counted our um, agreed upon um, like payments that Andrea was forfeiting and not paying anyone. And we got that together for a GoFundMe campaign, which gratefully we had a really wonderful ally um, come and be kind of a forerunner for us because a lot of people in the coalition are local um, to Baltimore, where the Ancestor Project is held. And so a lot of them needed to stay anonymous. So when we formed it, um, we needed to actually find someone with some privilege um, and protection to be able to be the name on the GoFundMe to not put a target on anyone's back in particular. And so we, yeah, we organized 
and we built campaigns, emails, like we got, like I said, organized. I mean, it's, it's Google Docs and it's, you know, meetings and, and trying to also do some self-care during it. It was really intense in July when everything first started, because when we did the first release of information, there was an outpour of, yeah, like pain and hurt and confusion and stories. Stories that was coming out um, in the comment section, in the DMs, like saying people saying things like, I'm surprised this isn't about assault. And we're like, wait, back up. This goes beyond financial harm. And so we started investigating with those people and those friends of friends. And it painted a very different picture for all of us. So um, in order to kind of organize how we were receiving the information, we developed a survey, an anonymous survey that we started sharing with people. And, you know, if you have a story, do you mind sharing the details of that story? And let's kind of try to paint a picture of harm so that we can really see the extent of harm. And as you mentioned, you know, the beginning of this was financial harm for BIPOC healers, right? Seeking justice to remedy that issue. But when all of these other um, allegations came forward, it really ranged. There was men that were harmed. There was also European women that were harmed. So it's like we really actually had to kind of expand the scope of care. And then we started receiving some influx of people that really wanted to help, which is beautiful. So we were able to create like a care roster of non-monetary services, like um, support circles and one-on-one consultations and energy clearings and whatever people could pour into it that wasn't financial because we recognize also that like to ask victims and survivors and communities of marginalized people to fund the harm and to remedy the harm that a person caused is like it's a hard ask and so we've actually been taking a lot of note of what larger organizations and what larger psychedelic businesses have also shown themselves in support of this. Um, so that's been a really interesting and revealing thing as well. So um, it it is particularly heartbreaking to not just know the scope, how far this person's harm went, but also to hear the individual stories and the details. And um, deep in my heart, I I just want to acknowledge that, you know, vetting your facilitator is one thing like a person looking to seek out for help is one thing but there's a a very systemic problem and what has been taught to me by some of my teachers like Brittany Jade Wilson um she said you can teach someone to not get raped but it's important to also teach how not to And so, you know, putting the responsibility on the person who's green to navigate how a vetting process should look is one side of it. But we also need to educate people how to be like equitable and ethical within their sexual energy and their power. And that is going to be ongoing work for sure. And um, we also want to teach people how to protect each other. And something that's shared with me, too, is like people that are seeking out help for psychedelic, you know, um, assisted therapy and care, sometimes like they're experiencing uh, such pain or discomfort in their life that they're not even getting up to go to work. Like they're not even enough to cook food for them. Like, how are they supposed to have the bandwidth to do the work of vetting people properly? And so um, that's also something to acknowledge is like, is it actually up to the individual person to have to weed through all of the charlatans or can we create a system of accountability so that the people that they do come in contact with are also held and are, are thought through by maybe another kind of body. So that's also been, been on our hearts and some organizations are doing the work of, of doing that. And that actually just leads so perfectly into what I was going to ask next, because there is such a gray area around the legalization of what this is. Um, oftentimes, I think it might make it more difficult for someone to report, hey, I got you know assaulted because I was in a mushroom ceremony by someone. Well, it's not legal where I am to do mushrooms. So why am I going to go tell the, you know, 
law enforcement people that I need help. Um, and just what you mentioned just now, like, because there isn't, to my knowledge, any type of a governing body that's like verifying that, you know, this person doesn't have a background um, of essay or doesn't have a background where they're like, you know, harassers in the psychedelic space. D- like, it just seems like there isn't somewhere for a green person to check, you know? Yeah. So I guess I'd love to just hear like what your thoughts are on, because I know I've heard you speak about this before. When we're in this realm of the decriminalization and the legalization, because that's where we are right now here in the States, like it's moving towards those things. And the psychedelic space is becoming more popular because we're seeing these therapeutic uses for these entheogens and the government is funding these things. And if we can't somehow figure out a way to like vet people as a facilitator, like how does this does it harm more people? Like, how do we keep it from harming more people? And what do we need to look for red flag wise as, as an individual um, to keep it from happening to us? Mm. I mean, to your original, one of the first questions that you asked, I mean, how does a person come forward um, knowing that they were assaulted or harmed um, during a psychedelic experience when currently we're in a massive gray area and legislation, um, you know, doesn't really protect us within the space because it's not considered legal. Um, I mean, my question to you is like, so why, so, so why do you think that a person like, Dre could get away with this for so long, right? It's because of that. It's because it's for the same reason that systemically um, sex workers are targets for Mm -hmm. all kinds of abuses because they're operating inside of a gray area that isn't protected by law enforcement or court systems or anything like that. And there's not a lot of bodies that even do care about those kinds of folks. So I, I really do feel like predators actually have a bit of a field day right now operating in this space because they kind of count on the fact that most people won't talk. And a lot of the people didn't feel safe to unless until there was a larger voice coming forward and a, and a coalescence of voices coming together to say, we are ready to listen and we want to hear your stories and we are going to support you um, and keep you safe through anonymity. And it's really interesting because there is actually a legal case beginning with this. Some people are coming forward and the, the red tape around, like, how do you report? Who do you report it to? Um, if it happened in Colorado or in Texas, can they, those people also jump in on the same case that's being built in Baltimore? No. So it's like, there's actual like challenges around bringing allegations to the harms of one person, especially if they operated in a wide reach, which this person did. So People will ask, oh, how come no one reported it? How come, you know, no one ever went to the police? I mean, for a number of reasons, namely because a lot of these women are black women, they're brown women. There's already, you can't even have kids and be that open about your psychedelic use. I mean, like, there's already so much pressure in in things that we do have laws for, like sexual assault within marriage or domestic violence. People don't report on those things because sometimes the abuse intensifies when that happens or they don't have a place to be or go when they're in the process of working through this or they're not always taken seriously either. So there are serious flaws in the current system that's here. And what I will say is that the psychedelic movement doesn't even have systems right now. And you know, as survivors in this movement, um, we've been asked, like, what systems do we need to put in place in order to, like, fix this? And it's so interesting because, like, to ask the survivors of the harm to build the system to help them is, like, okay, like, we can give our perspective, but do we even have the bandwidth, the resources to build institutional structures when we're licking our own wounds and trying to repair 
the harm that's just literally happened to us either corporally, emotionally, or financially, which a lot of people were counting on that money never came. So I, um, what I've been seeing and to the point of like, how do we have some kind of a vetting system that isn't user reliant? I've been watching some psychedelic concierge type models come up so that it's an organization that incentivizes good behavior among the people that they hold within their directory because there's a lot of psychedelic directories out there but you all you have to do is just say hey I'm here this is what I serve this is where I'm at this is my name my website and then they'll just get put on so like those people aren't getting vetted and there's no financial incentive for the organization to vet them unless there's like some kind of a membership or something like that that people pay into so what I've been seeing with these concierge models is really cool like People will get on, there's one called Psychedelic Passage, um, and the people will get on with this concierge, listen to their story, and then pair them up with like a list of people. And those people get reviewed by the people that go. And if there's harm happened, like they're off their directory and they will never like work with that organization again. So it's mm-hmm. like, that's an interesting solution to this issue. And what I've been reaching out to in my community is like, well, what happens when harm does occur, right? Like, okay, cool. We're going to just take you off a directory list, but then like they could just walk into another community. And that happens often. Um, They'll just, you know, we, there's an indigenous elder speaking of indigenous wisdom. Unfortunately, there's an elder, a peyote roadman that as soon as I, you know, oh, we had a peyote sit in, you know, Southern California. I'm like, oh, and it was hard. I'm like, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Like this person has moved from community to community and touched so many people and because there's no oversight and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, this kind of old school model, the council of elders, right, has like come up a lot. And unfortunately, the person that we're talking about was often the person that was considered for elder councils. So what happens when the elders are doing wrong and the elders are doing harm, which often does happen? Um, there have been, you know, people that serve Bufo, for example, which is 5-MAO-DMT that have caused a lot of harm in this space. And there's been sexual assault um, during those experiences, even deaths sometimes. And, you know, women have come together um, to speak about that. And I've gone to other elders and said, you know, how come you booked this person? to headline your conference if we have all these allegations forward about him. And the response that I received was, women love to see a man fall from power. So I'm like, okay, like I see what we're trying to do with the Council of Elders thing. And I even reached out to another man who was like, I'm putting together a this this the sacred sages as he calls it and you know I said oh wow I'm so excited to hear that how do I nominate the people I feel are really an integrity to be on a council of that kind and he said well the minimum age is 65 and I was like hmm. oh, okay but like are the needs of the psychedelic 65 year old even close to what a 29 year old young woman might want or need in this space. Trauma informed was not part of the dialogue, okay, 40, 50 years ago. And there were certain cultural allowances at that time that like are absolutely coloring people's experiences as an elder right now. So, you know, I can't, I'm never gonna speak down on my elders, but I really do feel like that model um, just because they're older doesn't mean they're right. And I've had to deal with that a lot in my life. Um, do as I say, not as I do and all that authoritarian energy. So there's a lot of young people, people that I do feel are very well equipped. They're very conscientious now about the needs and have the pulse on what's going on presently today. And I would love to see more young people pulled into the fold without all of the um, conservatism and um, protecting of patriarchs, even though they're harmful as shit, um, to really come forward and to be considered what we call baby elders and leaders in the space, you know? And I consider Charlotte a baby elder. I consider a lot of people baby elders, and there's a lot of good people out here. So I would love to see councils actually made intergenerationally of people that they can, we can work, we can work with multiple perspectives here. So, and I think. 
um, to close out this question, you know, I mentioned earlier, like teach a person how not to get raped or like teach people in the culture to not do this. And my sister, Brittany Jade Wilson and I, she teaches um, and has an organization called the Original Instruction School. She's Pueblo and, and um, Scottish. And um, she's a wonderful human being. She's seen a lot in her day, um, namely spending time in Peru, um, you know, spending time with ayahuasca shamans and um, seeing through a lot of the interesting and strange hierarchic um, mentality, the kind of ashram mentality, the spiritual guru mentality, even in the jungle, unfortunately. And a lot of people would consider all these problems are only happening in the States. They are not. They're very prevalent in the jungle as well. And um, even prevalent among traditional people. And, um, you know, she's had her own experiences and run-ins in the psychedelic community and experienced, you know, sensual harm while in those spaces and is a trauma-informed womb wellness advocate, um, very well-versed in the legal sphere um, with hands-on womb care and has been just a helper in this world. And so she and I are coming together to build um, education for people within the psychedelic space to have sensual integrity um, and to be able to tend to themselves and others that um, you know, might experience harm. It's like to protect sensual beings. And so I, I really do feel like teaching the culture how not to do this um, will also, I would love to see some requirements of these psychedelic facilitator trainings, these programs that are now saying, yes, you can serve people to really have very open conversations about what do we do with this power? Now that people are coming to us with their hands wide open, trusting us, how do we ensure that we keep our power in check and not violate that really beautiful trust relationship that, that we're building with the people that we care and tend for? So um, I'm excited to be sharing that and to be training people and to be you know supporting people with that literacy because we deserve to be able to talk about it. Sexual assault in the psychedelic space is not too dark. It's not too negative. It's not to be relinquished to the shadows. Like that's some old generation stuff. And we're in a time now that I think we're finally ready to actually start working through some of these big problems because the rose colored glasses are off. And the truth is eating a bunch of medicine or drinking a bunch of ayahuasca or blasting off on a bunch of 5-MeO-DMT does not automatically make you a better person than anyone else. Yeah. Wow. So I love to transition into your work to rematriate entheogens um, because, you know, we spoke about exactly what you're just saying about, you know, upholding some of these patriarchs who are not doing the right thing. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about that like mission of yours? What does it mean to rematriate entheogens? And I've spoken of the word entheogen before, but if you want to mm -hmm. give us the definition again, some folks might not be as um, familiar with that term. Yeah, we got, we got some little sprouts out here and I love to talk to my little sprouts because I, I swear I, I'm sometimes people's first stop on the journey and I'm really happy for the psychedelic kindergarten energy because it's like where the foundational stuff you know what I mean? If you learn these yeah. basics, like then you can go as far as you want, but it's like, we got to get the basics down. And so rematriation of entheogen. So yeah, what is entheogen? So entheogen is a terminology that comes from like the McKenna's, like Terrence McKenna, uh, Terrence McKenna, Dennis McKenna. They're two psychedelically very, very um, adept brothers. <clears throat> uh, Terrence was definitely really active in the in the 80s and 90s and a mathematician and if you've ever heard of like stoned ape theory or stoned ape hypothesis like early hominids eating mushrooms expanding our brain capacity all of that 20 30,000 years ago that comes from Terrence McKenna and he was like my psychedelic grandpa when I was like first starting I would just listen to his lectures and stuff um when I was early in the space and yeah his brother Dennis kind of brought forward this terminology and theogen which is N in Theo, G 
God and Jen to generate. So um, substances which generate the God within. And I mean, that could, that can be mushroom and that could be chamomile. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. um, I really just want people to like not put psychedelics on this like pedestal of, you know, these are the most important earth medicines out there because without the help of all of the million other plants that we interface with every single day, like we wouldn't even have, be able to have psychedelic experiences. So shout out to all of nature and all of nature as an entheogen, certainly, because I know that I'm sure someone in the audience has like sat under a willow tree and been absolutely transported into a different space, time consciousness. So just acknowledge that all living things have the ability and the innate capacity to generate like a divinity within us all. Um, and then to rematriate, um, rematriation is uh, a terminology that was coined within like the indigenous women's like liberation movement that is ongoing and everlasting. And probably one of the most important, I would say, is um, to rematriate is to give back ownership, stewardship, care and tending and benefit to original people and namely and and namely original women indigenous women um and to re-anchor in the values set by those people um because i don't i hope some people listening know this but like a lot of indigenous people here from the tip to the to the toe of the americas Um, held women and mothers in very high esteem as part of leadership within communities. And the dominating culture that's presently here did not think the same way about mothers and women and femmes and anyone that just had femininity as part of themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I really wanted to bring these two topics together because for me, a lot of the issues that we are seeing is because we've not acknowledged the right of of women to be powerful within this space. Sure, maybe they can have some power in this space, but only if they embody pre-assigned characteristics that are safe and deemed acceptable by the dominating culture, i.e. being, um, yeah, like wearing a suit or being quote-unquote professional or like being docile and 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 you know uh, like tamed, well tamed, well mannered, all of that. You know, I've watched my friends be very outspoken, <clears throat> be very wise, be very steadfast in their views, and watch them not get booked for stuff, and watch them be like ostracized by the community because oh, she's too much. So I'm I'm really here for the too much women. I'm really here. <laughs> I'm really here for the people with incredible range. Um, and I'm really here for, you know, fuck a seat at the table, right? Um, there's a great organization called A Table of Our Own, right? Because why am I fighting to sit at a table with you if you don't even value the things that I say? And truthfully, rematriating and theogens is like acknowledging the fact that we built the table. I will not beg for a seat. The only reason why anyone is there is because of us. And the only reason why any of these organizations have access to this medicine, know anything about it, is because the original people that knew about it before they did. And so um, that trickles into a lot of different aspects of what it looks like tangibly to rematriate in theogens. And for me, I'm watching a very like vertical model with how to educate around entheogens, for example, right? Like people needing to go to a four-year school first, then they get their master's, then they get their certification program, then they get all their other certifications, right? And then now you're ready. And now like you can, you know, reasonably be um, responsible enough to sit for someone. But I come from a time and it was the changing of a time for sure. But when I was coming up in psychedelics and started eating them in college like there was nothing like that um there wasn't this structure for like the ones who know and the ones who don't and same thing happened with midwifery generally midwifery practices and birthing were the responsibility and were given as a folk model 
and were dis- the wisdom was disseminated in a folk model, which is horizontal. Like your grandmother knew how to catch babies. And so you maybe went to catch babies with her when you were five, and then you saw it enough times that then maybe they allowed you to do the swaddle or they allowed you to do a small part of it. And then you kind of came up in it that way by watching it over and over and over again. And right now, that's not quite the model a lot of people are living in. And that's the model of midwifery that got largely destroyed by industrialized birthing systems. And so that's why it's important to understand history and to understand the way that matriarchs have been like robbed of their knowledge or, you know, the knowledge has been taken and then they've been discredited or pushed to the side and marginalized when the knowledge came from them to begin with. Obstetrics wouldn't know anything without a midwife. And we definitely wouldn't know about LSD without midwives either, um, which is a whole other conversation. So let me see. Sorry. Okay. Um, so all this to say, rematri- rematriating in theogens is really like rematriating everything. And we're bringing that model here into the psychedelic space. And so um, what's really beautiful about folk models, right? I come from a folk herbalism tradition, for example, like I didn't go to school to be an herbalist, but I know about herbs because my mom, like I cooked in a kitchen with her. I watched her pick plants. I learned how to grow certain plants because of being in the garden with her. Like we, we learned through lived experience and that's how indigenous frameworks also work is like children's work and parents' work often commingled. Like we were in we were in rooms where healings would take place. We were in rooms where food was prepared. We were in rooms where b- babies were being born. And so we learn this way in an integrated model of familial relationship and experience building. And so now that I'm seeing, oh, this is where psychedelics is heading certification programs and higher education Um, it's going to destroy, and it is presently destroying accessibility for people to have access to knowledge or be considered knowledgeable enough to be able to serve. Like, how are the traditional leaders and people within cultures that work with these medicines even getting, like, grandfathered in into this movement? It's not happening a lot. Like, we're only looking at the white coats and we're only looking at these certain people as, like, you are the one that is representing the knowledge base when they're literally just operating in maybe about 50 or 60 years of psychedelic history and knowledge up against generation after generation, up against 52 generations of knowledge accumulated over time. So that's a really important point that I just want to let people know that although I don't qualify like or say that Just because you want to serve mushrooms means you should. But I'm just saying that you don't need to pay $20,000 to learn how to eat mushrooms and have a safe experience yourself. That you don't need to pay someone to watch you while you journey. Containers are valuable and containers are beautiful. But I believe everyone has the innate ability to build a relationship with these sacred earth medicines. And thankfully, There are beautiful community-based models and beautiful traditions that people can step into, walk into, observe, learn from, help inside of, ask questions about, build relationships with elders, build relationships with people working with elders. If that's your path, I, I highly recommend do and walk that path in a very humble and noble way. And that might not be accessible to everyone. <laughs> not everyone's going to have access to an elder. Not everyone's going to have access to teachers in this way because they're going to be coming through, you know, a therapeutic framework, for example. But I, I just want people to remember, like, rematriating and theogens is deeply about maintaining, at least in the corner of the space, a model where people can learn about entheogens laterally, the way that mushrooms grow across, not up. And I really do feel that the way that that is practiced in my work is by educating mothers and the heads of families and aunties and uncles and holding ceremony where children are allowed to be there and 
building community that's entheogenically inspired and um, influenced so that the children can know and that they can grow up knowing and that their children can grow up knowing so that in just a few generations, we reinstill these these values to the kids and the children's children. Um, and we can have psychedelic literacy. We can build in things like trauma-informed care. We can build things in like integration. We can build things in like ceremony, you know, over time as opposed to over dollars. Um, it's going to change the landscape a lot quicker and we need systemic change as a human family and it's not going to come by just giving the abilities to the people who have money like we need to give it to as many people as possible because the earth is praying for a change and change will happen epigenetically through my research we're already watching how moms are benefiting so greatly by integrating sacred mushroom into their life how it's changing the way that they parent how it's changing the way that their children are functioning. And if we know anything, um, you know, the quality of a person's adult life is really determined by what they experience as a child. So if we have moms that are well-resourced and have mothers that are emotionally tended to, cared for, liberated, happy, pleasure-filled, we're going to have generations of kids that are actually happy and decent you know so I really look forward to that and I really look forward to normalizing and not commodifying mothers that have relationship with mushroom yeah and I think it's a great time to to speak a little bit about your research because I think this is so important um I know so many mothers listen to this podcast I've worked with some and and parents in general um I had a wonderful conversation today actually with two men who um I met locally, which was so surprising because I live in a small little town and they both said that sitting with mushrooms have made them better fathers. And, it, and so I know it was just so beautiful. And you have this amazing um, project going on, this survey where you're letting people, mothers, you know, talk about their experience with, you know, these these entheogens and so I would love for you to explain a little bit more about that I would love to put a link to it too mm-hmm. in the podcast notes as well yeah especially if you have mothers in the audience that maybe you know felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to about this I felt like it was the right thing for me so um you know a lot of the flack that we get is around how can you recommend this to mothers or talk about it we just don't have enough research and when anyone goes online psilocybin pregnancy, psilocybin breastfeeding. I mean, now there's a ton and I'm so happy to see that like the collective voices and like normalizing this has actually drawn people to start pulling this information together. But back in the day, three years ago, when I wrote my entheogenic earth mother assisted guide, I mean, like there was no, there was no information collectively that pointed to scientific and traditional knowledge around what happens when mothers eat mushroom in their pregnancy. And so that's actually what birthed the word mushroom. Mushroom temple was a place that we held space in on clubhouse just so that we could get the psychedelic moms together and have conversations. And we, we really wanted to fill in some gaps because we got to move beyond, is it safe? Because we know that the babies are fine. So we're watching them be fine. And so, you know, we're going to watch science try to pin this down. They're going to be 10 years behind because we're the conversation we're having is now not, is it safe? But we're asking like what the benefit is. What have we noticed is good and positive about these choices that we've been making? And so um, I always had a vision for having a motherhood survey. Um, and it's it's open to people of all gender expressions that have gestated children. And that's what I really also love about your platform, Leslie, is how inclusive you are and the care that you offer people. Because I just don't have time for just us fighting about who has a uterus and, and what body the uterus is inside of. Because I'm like, every womb deserves care, period. So um, it's a gender neutral also survey. We use gender neutral language in it. And, um, we started asking people like, what was your dosage? Did you journey during pregnancy, breastfeeding, postpartum? I mean, I've had the vision for this survey for a long time, but the catalyst didn't come until spring of this year 
when I caught wind through the Microdosing Institute, which is also a great organization um, that James Fadiman was working with a midwife in the UK and a doula in the UK. And she was getting on phone calls with people. A lot of us do consults, microdosing, full journeys. And some of those people are pregnant and they have lots of questions. And so she, as a doula, started supporting postpartum mothers with microdosing and like was in these conversations and was jotting down information. And she was sharing that with James Fadiman, like the father of modern microdosing, who's an amazing person. And he's writing a book um, on frequently asked questions in microdosing. And so, you know, I got looped in all of that. And you know, I, I looked at the framework that they were working with and, you know, doing one-on-one calls and writing everything down and was like, have you ever considered taking these questions that we have and putting them into a survey and seeing if we can reach a little further, a little wider and see if we can get more data points because we're not processing them as individuals on our own time. And so they actually took to the idea and we collaboratively made the survey with James and, um, what a heartfelt pursuit and such an exciting moment of there isn't enough research. And I was like, well, then let's be the research then. You know what I mean? Like if we can't get a scientific institution to be able to give the thumbs up on, you know, ethically, it's okay to dose mothers with mushrooms. You know, if we can't go that route because of the ethical issues, then what better medicine than storytelling? come on, like, that's how moms teach is through storytelling. And I'd already run that route before I'd already talked to people in like neonatal research at like, you know, Boston University and was like, here's kind of a proposition or a, you know, a potential for research project. And like, they were trying to use synthetic psilocybin. Mm. And the only way to get funding for that was to get a synthetic psilocybin company to do this so that they can use the research to prove that their product was beneficial to mothers so that they would have a market to sell to at the end. I was like, I didn't want to push this information into that way. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't really reflect typical use. Not everyone has access to synthetic psilocybin, at least not yet. And knock on wood that we keep medicine around, um, fruiting bodies around, because we're going to see a landscape with a lot of synthetic psilocybin. So um, I just, that opportunity didn't pan out, but I'm glad that the survey did because, oh my goodness, almost 300 stories already. I love it. It's so great. So I'm like, wow, we're sitting on a lot of data. And now my issue is how do I get this to the people? Because I want people to have this available. I want people to be able to have that question answered. I want people to be able to know that the multiple people have been experiencing the same thing. And that's not to say that it's going to happen that way for everyone. We made sure we had a question. What challenges did you face during your, you know, mushroom journey that like you weren't expecting? What part of it was hard? Like, I want people to know the range because it's not a, it's not a cure-all. It's not a fix-it pill. People got to work at this. And, but I want to just tell people like, just because the research isn't there doesn't mean that it's not possible to, to participate and that we are kind of on the front end of this right now. And that in 20, 30 years, we're going to know a lot more. And the cannabis moms paved the way for us. They first started normalizing this altered state of consciousness mom. And um, I'm happy to say that not only is this psilocybin survey coming through, but we will also have a cannabis survey coming through as well. So, um, you know, it's it, rematriating at theogens. My focus is the moms and that's okay. Everyone's got their own focus, but I'm really, really here to tell and to be with, with other mothers because it's hard to find people, you know, that cycle that care about these things. And and it feels good when we are together. So um, thank you for asking about the research. And if anyone, if you know who's listening, you or a friend of yours has experiences eating mushrooms at any point, preconception, pregnancy, at the birth, postpartum, breastfeeding, like, tell us, let us know. Um, because you are actually creating something that's going to help so many people um, because this isn't available. It's not available anywhere. So um, yeah, it brings me a lot of hope and it just shows me how, as you mentioned before, we're in decriminalization efforts. We are in these efforts. Like what we do matters right now. 
because of how green the space is. And it's all hands on deck. Every hand in the soil of this movement is making an impact right now. It's not so saturated that like we're one of so many billion people that like, you know what I mean? Like our voices really matter right now. And so um, I appreciate you um, for letting me be a voice in this space. Um, I appreciate you for being a voice in this space too. Uh, we really, we really have the opportunity to create powerful um, allyships and allegiances with each other. And what I love about this space is, you know, people try to bring competitive shit into this, but deeply, deeply, um, we we can have compassion. We can value each other as beings. We can value each other as, you know, people that are not just serving medicine as in I'm putting medicine from my hand into yours, but we are serving like the mission of medicine. And it's definitely moving out of me and into fucking we because, yeah, there's there's big things happening right now. So, um, yeah. I feel I feel really complete for today. I do too. I was just going to say, you know, um, I will put links to your work in the show notes. We'll put a link to the survey in the show notes. I also want to include your conversation on the Mama Psychedelia podcast. I had Mackenzie on this show oh, a couple of weeks ago. And if you want to hear more about Michaela's, like the, the psychedelic motherhood, there mm-hmm. are, I'm just getting, I'm getting chill bumps right now. That conversation on that podcast you had with Mackenzie was like one of the most enlightening I've ever heard about mushrooms while pregnant. So I'll put a link to that. I'll put a link to the Hyphae Links, uh, Hyphae Links podcast as well. And the Tap Out Coalition. There's going to be a shitload of links, y'all. Just go look at all the fucking links. And Michaela, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Leslie. And I really, from the bottom of my heart, like you are an ally of mine. So just keep doing what you're doing. Like we're in it together. I'm here with you. And um, yeah, call me whenever you need it. I hope you guys loved that conversation so much. I have learned so much from Michaela through her online presence, through the courses I've taken that she has taught. And then of course, through my personal mentorship with her and she's such a light. So go to the show notes below, find all of the links we just talked about. Remember, you can always connect with me on social media at Leslie Draffin. Join my email newsletter. It's something that I'm starting new. Um, It'll be a really beautiful and more uncensored way to speak about some things that are very personal to my work, including womb healing, psychedelic work, cyclical living. You can find a link for that in the show notes below as well. Have yourself a wonderful week. And remember... There's no light without darkness, but there's no darkness without light. I'll see you next time, babe.